Welcome to Bending the Arc, a podcast series that explores the everyday work of creating inclusive, equitable, and racially just communities. I'm Mark Joseph, one of the co-hosts of this podcast, along with my colleague, Dr. Amy Carey. We host and produce this podcast along with our colleagues at the National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities at Case Western Reserve University. In this episode, I'll be talking with Dr. Ed Getz. I've really been looking forward to having Ed on the show because I consider him one of my mentors and role models in the field of urban studies. Ed is one of those academics who truly lives out his values and principles through his research and scholarship, and I've learned a tremendous amount from him over the years. Every few years, he cranks out a book that drops a sharp critique and reality check and influences the course of scholarly and policy debate in urban policy. Ed is the director of the Center for Urban and Regional Affairs and a faculty member at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. He's the author of four books, the titles of which make clear his research focus and his point of view. The One-Way Street of Integration, Fair Housing, and the Pursuit of Racial Justice in American Cities, New Deal Ruins, Race, Economic Justice, and Public Housing Policy, Clearing the Way, Deconcentrating the Poor in Urban America, and Shelter Burden, Local Politics and Progressive Housing Policy. Ed has served on the board of directors of nonprofit housing agencies in the Twin Cities and on several regional commissions related to affordable housing and development. Early in his career, he worked at the Mayor's Office of Housing and Economic Development in San Francisco and for several nonprofit community developers in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Ed's essay for the What Works volume was co-authored with Anthony Damiano and Rashad Williams, both of whom were PhD students at the University of Minnesota at the time. Their focus was on what it means to promote access to economic opportunity for low-income African-Americans and other people of color, and why that often means having to leave their neighborhood and move to a, quote, opportunity neighborhood. They argue against a dominant focus on resident mobility to address segregation and marginalization, and they advocate for a community development focus, which would prioritize enabling low-income families of color to thrive in place. Conversations with Ed are always thought-provoking and lively, and I'm glad you've joined us for this episode. Ed Getz, welcome to Bending the Arc. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for having me on. It's good to have you here. As I've told our audience, I've been very excited to have this conversation with you. I've told them that uh, uh, conversations with you are always lively, so I promise them that's what they can be looking forward to. I'm sure you're not going to disappoint. I hope I can live up to that. (laughs) I'm sure you will. All right, well, let's start by learning a little bit more about your work. Uh, I've already told the audience a little bit about your background, but let's talk about the center. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about the Center for Urban and and regional affairs, kind of what's been its trajectory over time, and what kind of things are you all currently working on? Sure. Um, so the Center for Urban and Regional Affairs, we we call it CURA here at the University of Minnesota. CURA was created in 1968 when the city of Minneapolis, which is where the University of Minnesota is located, 
was uh, was going through some uh, some civil unrest, as many cities were. And the University of Minnesota is the land grant institution uh, for the state of Minnesota. And although it had a very aggressive sort of um, identity outside the state, and uh, uh, it, it didn't really have much of a presence in the metropolitan area. And so Cura was created to be a, a research and outreach arm of the University of Minnesota focusing on this metropolitan area where the university is located. And so for the first 30, 40 years of its existence, you know, Cura did a lot of work with local governments, state government as well. I think since I've been the director, I got into this position in 2009. Since then, we have worked, I think, a bit more with community-based organizations on more equity-focused uh, kind of work. We still work with local governments. The mission of Cura is very much a, a local and regional one, not a national one. So, uh, so most of the things that we do um, have local relevance. We've we've done studies of gentrification in the Twin Cities. Uh, we've looked at the question of evictions. We did a study on rent stabilization for the city of Minneapolis. You know, we work on a lot of different issues. Uh, we fund faculty to do research. We fund graduate students to do research. But virtually everything we do uh, has a community engagement component to it. We, we have community partners uh, at various levels, either funding or sometimes co-producing the kind of work that we uh, that we do. Mm -hmm. Great. Thanks, Ed. So among all of that, what would you lift up for our audience's attention? What's something you all are currently working on that you're particularly energized and excited about? Yeah, I think there are two things, two projects that are, are really exciting uh, from my standpoint. The first is an, uh, we are facilitating a regional anti-displacement working group uh, because the city or, or the region rather is still building out its transit system. And so there are going to be new light rail lines uh, that are being built. And so people want to know how to do this in a way that minimizes uh, displacement of businesses, but also lower income families. So we're doing research to support that, but we're also facilitating that region-wide community engagement. And the second project that is, I think, really important is we're looking at the question of single family home rentals um, and mm -hmm. investor ownership of those single family rentals. Uh, to to look at the impact that 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 growing segment of the market is having on the experiences of tenants, but also uh, the neighborhoods in which these uh, rentals are are located. Um, I think previous research has shown that corporate and investor ownership of single family homes is typically associated with elevated rents, with declining rates of of upkeep and maintenance and greater reliance on evictions. And so none of those outcomes are particularly um, what, what renters or neighborhoods wanna see. And so we're trying to get a, a, a better handle on the prevalence of this kind of ownership model and then its impacts. Great, thanks for that, Ed. And, and we will make sure to provide a link to your website or to the website for Cura so that our, our audience can, can take a closer look and, and keep track of some of those projects. 
I want to take a step back and hear a little bit about you uh, and get a sense of uh, how you, the, the arc that led you to become uh, Dr. Edward Goetz at the University of Minnesota. Just to say a word about your personal professional journey, uh, any particular formative experiences that kind of led you to get on the, the pathway that's uh, to being an academic that you are today? Well, thanks for that question. Um, yeah, I think there've been a, a, a couple. I, I grew up close enough to the city of Chicago to be you know, fascinated by the big city. I, I love cities, um, the diversity of people, of places, the variety of things uh, that you can do. I've always had a feeling that that cities were cultural centers, economic centers, just the most important place to be. And so that that was sort of generally formative uh, for me. Second, uh, I, you know, I had the good fortune of being inspired by uh, teachers when I was an undergraduate and being excited about about ideas and about how we see the world. Uh, what we can do to improve uh, conditions in the world. So I, I owe a lot to uh, some uh, some professors that I had as uh, as a young person who have inspired me to uh, uh, to go on. And then I think the last thing was kind of an accidental formative moment. I uh, when I was writing my dissertation, uh, I got a job with the mayor's office of housing and economic development in the city of San Francisco. It was where I was doing my research. My research and my dissertation is on economic development, but I got the job accidentally in the housing division of it. And this was to tell you how long ago that was. It was when um, Diane Feinstein was the mayor of uh, of San Francisco. And uh, and that's the, my first exposure to housing and the politics of housing and the challenges of providing affordable housing uh, to uh, to the full uh, range of uh, of people uh, living in cities. And and I've been I've been housing uh, focused ever since. Mm. As you reflect back on that time. Are you able to kind of pull back up your kind of key takeaway walking out of that experience as you were kind of suddenly exposed to, oh, this is how this housing stuff works or doesn't work? What do you think you kind of took away from that early experience? I mean, I took away that it was a, a hell of a lot more complicated than I had ever imagined. <laughs> right? I, th I thought housing, you know, what could be what what could be confusing about housing, right? You build it, uh, you make it affordable, um, people live in it. Right. Um, but the politics of getting affordable housing built is uh, and remains my uh, my central uh, interest and my central focus. And the uh, the way that housing produces uh, really kind of uh, very fundamental questions of uh, of of community and what people. Uh, will accept in their communities what they fear in their communities uh, speaks to uh, speaks to a whole range of uh, of other more fundamental issues, and so that's why I think sort of housing is pretty central to everything. Beautiful. Let's turn then to your essay which is one of the places you get into some of these fundamental issues. So our focus in this conversation is this essay. You contributed to the What Works volume, and we were so glad that you did, because um, I think a lot of the contributors to the volume 
were coming from a point of view, accepting mixed income communities as a good thing. Yes, we should be doing them. And we wanted to have some debate in the volume. And, you know, Ed, you're always good for bringing in debate. And so you and your colleagues, your essay essentially says, yeah, maybe, but maybe not. Like, hold on, wait a second. How are we approaching this question of creating mixed income communities for whom, where, and how are we creating them? And so we really appreciated uh, your your essay as one of the kind of uh, pushbacks, reality checks in, in the volume, if you will. So your essay was entitled Changing the Narrative and Playbook on Racially Concentrated Areas of Poverty. And you co-authored it with uh, two of your colleagues at the time at Cura, Anthony Damiano and Rashad Williams. While you guys were working on that essay, you had also recently published uh, your latest book. And so I want to take a second to plug that for our audience. So that book is called The One-Way Street of Integration, Fair Housing, and the Pursuit of Racial Justice in American Cities. I want to plug it because it's a particularly kind of comprehensive and extremely thoughtful critique and assessment, I would say, of what you talk about as the integration imperative and this notion that the way to improve lives for people of color, African-Americans, is integration. We need to promote integration. And while you might not disagree with that at some level, you do use this book to say, let's kind of pull back and think about how are we making that happen? And, and why is that necessarily the way uh, to promote better quality of life uh, for these families that have been marginalized and excluded over time? So the book really is your chance. And I, I had heard you do this verbally uh, many times. And then finally, you put it in book form, which is to enter into a, a debate. And the debate is between, on the one hand, fair housing advocates who tend to promote the mobility of African-Americans out of high poverty segregated areas versus, on the other hand, community development advocates who focus on investment in place, investment in inner city communities to prioritize helping marginalized households of color remain in their communities as those neighborhoods revitalize. So I think like most of us, you agree both are ultimately good, necessary, um, but you provide a challenge to any kind of privileging of the first one, privileging of fair housing integration imperative. And you argue really in the book for the legitimacy of place-based neighborhood scale approaches in housing and community development. So in this conversation, we're going to focus on your essay, but I'd love for you to just connect the book and the essay for us. How, how would you say what you deal with in the book and what you, what the treatment in the essay, how are those related to each other? Sure. And, and thanks for that nice summary of the, uh, of the book and the argument. Uh, it, it's absolutely correct. These the, the book and the essay are very closely related. The, the ideas in the book are really foundational to the case that we try to present in the, uh, in the essay that we wrote for the What Works volume. So I would say uh, that I agree, yes, to this challenge uh, to the assumed primacy of integration in fair housing. One of, one of the points I try to make in the book is that a lot of fair housing advocates have reduced the idea of fair housing to integration. And I do object to that. I think most fair housing experts agree that the law embodies two specific kinds of objectives. One is equal access, right? Um, 
that there should be no discrimination in housing uh, based on uh, characteristics of, uh, of the protected classes. And then the second uh, objective is the integration objective, that uh, there should be fair and balanced uh, living environments for everyone. But there's nothing, nothing in the law that privileges one of these approaches over the other. Uh, but I see that privileging uh, in much of the fair housing activism of the last 15, 20 years in the United States. And it's a problem because the book is primarily about what to do, what to think when these two objectives come in conflict with each other, right? When to provide housing for people of color, low-income, disadvantaged uh, communities, uh, to do that when that is sort of seen as contributing to the perpetuation of, of segregation or at the very least not serving integration kinds of objectives, um, what do we do, right? And uh, the answer for most fair housing advocates was uh, you know, quite vehemently that uh, we should pursue the integration objective. And so the book is uh, is is really about questioning uh, that. I just object to the de-emphasis on community development or place-based strategy on the premise that it is a, a lesser uh, importance um, or that it hasn't worked in the past um, or that it perpetuates segregation. I, I, I try to question all three of those uh, in the book. And a good deal of my argument in the book is, is about what I regard as the paternalistic nature of many integration and mobility uh, advocates, that they have decided what is good for, uh, for low-income uh, communities, low-wealth communities, and people of color. I hope that what comes through in the book is not some kind of alternative paternalism, where I say it's community development that is really what is good. Instead, I argue for the legitimacy of what communities themselves decide, right? mm. that not everybody wants to move out of a low wealth uh, community, even one that some outside experts have decided is segregated and therefore a problem. Right. Um, and that the there is wisdom within the community. Uh, and there's expertise within the community, and that policymakers should listen to that expertise, that this serves objectives of self-determination, that the choice to remain in a community uh, is legitimate, and it shouldn't be dismissed as ill-informed or constrained, which is what fair housing advocates do. Um, mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be overridden by experts who think they uh, they know better. So, so that's what the the book is about. I, I I and and I guess the other part of the book is that of the two strategies, mobility on the one hand or integration on the one hand, and development, community development on the other, I truly think that community development has a better chance of actually producing racial justice. Uh, because I think that when it's done well, it helps to produce group power. Um, its theory of benefits does not incorporate kind of white normativity in the way that integration uh, does. 
the title of my book is is from a Stokely Carmichael quote. Um, uh, the end of that quote is that uh, Carmichael says, you know, integration has too often been based on the acceptance of the fact that in order to have decent housing, decent education, blacks must move into white neighborhoods. And that uh, this reinforces the idea that white is automatically better and that black is by definition inferior. And that's built into the model of, of integration. And I don't see too many fair housing activists challenging that. And, um, and so this essay that we wrote for the What Works volume uh, is an example of how this debate plays out in one city uh, in one specific uh, point in time. So that's the great. Case. Thank you, Ed. Yeah, no, that's great. And that gives our a little foreshadowing for our audience. We're going to speak about a specific case study example in a moment that's got some some pretty cool tools or frames that were introduced as a part of this. So we're going to get there. Um, but we really are going to unpack some of what you've laid out. I do want to clarify one thing for our listeners in terms of what we're contrasting here. As you said, mobility on the one hand, and I would say kind of place-based community development on the other. For us, and especially as we think about mixed income communities, I would take integration out from one end of this, because I think there's you can integrate through a place-based way, or you can integrate through a mobility way. And so we can promote mixed income communities through both. And we're going to come back in a moment and really allow you to kind of assess and critique mixed income communities as a policy. But I do want to kind of not too closely link integration with mobility. Yeah, but you can redevelop a community and think that this is going to be a way to integrate in place. Um, so we'll come back and we'll we'll unpack that a bit. One of the things that you really take up in in the essay is this notion of quote unquote opportunity and kind of access to opportunity. We talk a lot about opportunity in our field now. We talk about opportunity neighborhoods. We talk about a geography of opportunity. We talk about moving to opportunity. And as you and your colleagues write in your essay, quote, a small industry has emerged with the objective of seeing that low-income families are able to move out of their neighborhoods and presumably, and that's the key word there, presumably into opportunity, unquote. And in that industry, you include government policy, foundation policy, research and think tank policy. So all of these actors in our policy space saying, how do we help people move out of their neighborhoods and into opportunity? So if you could just dig in there a little bit, what concerns you with this focus on moving to opportunity? So many things, so many things. Um, but I, I, first to agree with your, with your point, right? It's impossible to read anything about housing policy in the last 15, 20 years without encountering opportunity and, and in, in one sense or another. Um, but there are so many things uh, about this framing that um, that bother me. First is uh, the binary thinking that goes into the idea that some neighborhoods are opportunity neighborhoods and then some aren't. Right? That that it's all or nothing. That we don't see or recognize any of the benefits or opportunities that exist in all communities, and we don't recognize that communities are rich in some forms of opportunity uh, and perhaps not in others. But that mix of opportunity changes from place to place, right? Mm -hmm. So this binary thinking uh, is, is, is problematic to me. Second, that 
um, there's an assumption, uh, I think, either implicit or perhaps in some cases explicit, that the only or perhaps the chief problem facing low-income communities of color is their location. The idea that you know, just moving them around to a new place will produce equity, will produce equality. I call this the potted plant theory of racial equity, right? Sure. That people are like potted plants. All you need to do is move them towards the window where the light is and uh, and they'll grow, right? Mm. Third, and really, there are a lot. So, so hang on. <laughs> Get Third, comfortable, everybody. <laughs> this notion of opportunity can lead to an acceptance of coercive measures. We have had in the United States programs that have forced the movement of people out of their homes uh, that have been justified by this idea of opportunity, that we are demolishing their public housing and we understand that nine out of 10 of them will be forced to move out and won't move back uh, in. Uh, for various reasons, but we do it because we are sure that we are moving them into better uh, neighborhoods, opportunity neighborhoods, or that we have programs that require their movement out, right? They don't get the assistance unless they move out to opportunity neighborhoods. Um, there's also an uncritical element of the opportunity paradigm uh, that that doesn't interrogate why opportunity only seems to exist in white communities. Mm. Right? So, in early stages of this of this opportunity era, when people were making opportunity maps, some some people just mapped the racial makeup of a metropolitan area, pointed to the white areas, and said those are the opportunity areas. Right? Well, that's that's problematic to me, right? That, and, it's it's and, funny because it's it, actually the reverse of redlining. Yeah. Right? It's just doing the same thing, but saying, okay, these are the bad places. Oh, so that means these are the good places. It's right, exactly. It's that binary thinking. And the opportunity paradigm doesn't, not only doesn't sort of recognize it, but it doesn't challenge it hmm. um, in, in fundamental ways. Um, I think there's a lack of understanding that People don't follow opportunity. Opportunity follows people, and it follows certain people. It mm. follows white people, all right? Mm. So, so opportunity used to be in the central cities of, of America. Then it used to be in the first suburbs, because that's where whites were moving out to. Now it's in the um, developing suburbs outside the uh, inner ring, right? And it's in some gentrifying neighborhoods back in the central city. This is not opportunity. This is not people following opportunity. It's opportunity being created where white people of means live. All right. So that's a that's a fundamentally different uh, uh, process that uh, the opportunity paradigm again doesn't acknowledge, doesn't uh, doesn't challenge. And then finally, I think by extension, it devalues and stigmatizes communities of color, right? Mm -hmm. It's what you said um, there, right? These are the good neighborhoods. Those are, by extension, the bad neighborhoods. And uh, and so those are neighborhoods that need to be fixed. Those are neighborhoods that are, are problems. So we need to study them. We need to fix them, right? I think all of those things are kind of fundamentally elements of 
this opportunity paradigm and they all bother me. Mm-hmm. Thank you for laying all that out. I want to touch on just a, a couple of those. Your point about opportunity following people also helped just uh, name the dynamic nature of all this, right? As if opportunity neighborhoods and isn't moving over time. It's it's moving around the metropolitan area. And why is it moving? Because white people are running away from, moving away from, right? We have a notion of white flight. So they're moving away from where black people are. So you play that out. You might have an opportunity in a particular moment. And as you pointed out a moment ago, for some time, the first ring suburbs were those places. But guess what? Black people, other low-income people of color started to move into them, seeking opportunity. And so then what did the white people do in those communities of means? They moved on and moved further out. So the opportunity neighborhood shifted. And so what are we setting up here? Or, or, I mean, we, we are setting up a dynamic and we're seeing it where then the black middle class is continuing to move further and further out, opportunity uh, then shifting around with them. And I guess I want to link this to your potted plant critique and have you just say a little bit more, because I could imagine a listener saying, but hold on. If we know there are communities with better schools, better infrastructure, better amenities, better retail, there there are neighborhoods with more opportunity. We know that. Ed, why, why wouldn't it be that if you moved a family into a community with those great things, that that wouldn't solve their problems, that that isn't the answer to what we're trying to change? So could you just delve a little deeper on your potted plant critique? Sure. It may not uh, improve their life situation. By the way, it may. Right. I mean, we there is some in, there is some research out there that shows moving to some uh, different types of neighborhoods is enough for some families to experience a wide range of better outcomes. Right. So there. So so I'm not denying that that uh, happens, um, but it doesn't happen for everyone. And the reason why it doesn't happen for everyone is because getting a family of color to a white opportunity neighborhood does not eliminate racism. It does not eliminate the gaps in human capital and social capital that are produced by this system of uh, of racism that produce these disparities of outcomes uh, in the first place, right? So there's nothing in the opportunity solution that gets at the more fundamental question, which is discrimination and racism that produced these tremendous differences and disparities uh, in outcomes across uh, racial lines. So, um, so I think that's important. I also want to um, react to what you said because there's another important implication in 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 what you said um, about the geography of opportunity always changing because white people will then sort of flee uh, more diverse areas uh, and and move to to new places. The opportunity solution to that problem is to limit the number of people of color who can move into an opportunity neighborhood, right? Avoid the tipping point. Avoid the tipping point. This was built into the Gautreaux program. It's built into um, it was built into a lot of the 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 integration programs uh, of the 60s and the 70s. And 
you know, the tipping point, the idea that uh, the percentage of people of color that will trigger white flight, that can be adequately conceptualized as a measure of white racism, right? And policy that incorporates this trigger point, uh, this it, it, it incorporates white racism as a as a necessary limiting factor in the policies uh, that we pursue. I think that's fundamentally wrong. It also suggests that neighborhoods that are predominantly white are the ideal neighborhoods and that uh, communities of color are, or even just abundantly diverse communities are inherently uh, dysfunctional. All of those are, it strikes me, implicit in this uh, in this model, which uh, um, which is why I find such trouble. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, to your point about a family might move into a neighborhood with more opportunity, but that doesn't change the fact that racism still exists. I just want to get more concrete for an audience about that. That doesn't change the school might be better, but it doesn't change the racism or at least the implicit bias that might exist in the principal in that school, in the teachers in that school, in their fellow students, in the other parents. It doesn't change the racism or implicit bias that might exist among the police force in that particular neighborhood, uh, in the retail establishments, in the restaurants they're going to want to go to, in the healthcare. So, yes, there may be these opportunities that are there, but the realities of to whom those are intended and for whom those are most comfortable, who can feel a sense of belonging in those, uh, doesn't change. And in fact, gets more fraught once the diversity quotient starts to increase in a community. And then you have this underlying question of, oh, wait a second, what's happening here? Where Where is this going? Right? It might have been something, and this gets to the, the point about tipping point you just mentioned, oh, something where we had a few folks. But all of a sudden, it looks like there's a trend of people of color, Black people, whoever it might be, moving into our community. And so that's going to put certain things in, in motion in this opportunity neighborhood. I'm going to just name um, another part of, of the essay, which I invite readers to take a look at, which is um, your critique of framing. You've mentioned it a couple of times. I just want to share some examples, right? You really call out our use of narrative and the way that we frame things as we talk about uh, this policy arena. So for example, we focus on the segregation of Blacks and the concentration of poverty, but we don't really talk about the segregation of whites and the concentration of affluence. And we're going to come back to that notion in a moment. Uh, we talk a lot about disadvantaged neighborhoods and the problem of disadvantaged neighborhoods, but we don't really focus on the role of advantaged neighborhoods and the role that those play in producing and perpetuating regional inequity. We're very comfortable talking in a more deficit narrative. You touched on this earlier, a deficit narrative about low-income communities of color and a kind of whatever the opposite, an asset narrative of white communities uh, without, as you said earlier on, there's good and bad in all, there's pros and cons in all these communities, but we tend to emphasize the deficit narrative when we're talking about low-income communities of color. I want to give you a moment to talk about power. And you 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 hinted at it earlier uh, when you talked about ultimately the community development approach, the place-based approach um, could really be core to producing uh, equity and more, more equality. The importance of building community capacity, the importance of building power, and the ways in which the mobility effort and kind of 
dispersing folks and scattering folks around the 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 landscape not too many a few here a few there um flies in the face of what it means to uh, consolidate power and influence and have voice and agency in what's going on in your space so i just wanted to give you a moment to talk about the power dimension of this i think it's critical and i think it it is the uh, one of the more important things that distinguishes a place-based uh development approach from uh from a, a mobility uh, approach right it's it's that um if done well community development will uh help to increase the capacity of uh, of a community of the individuals uh within it of the social groupings uh within it and you know i think what we're shooting for here is what uh the sociologist mary patio calls the the stuff of equality right we can mm -hmm. and and you get at that not by rearranging people and 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 moving low income people of color to uh, white areas where they can share in some of the uh, abundance uh, that is typically associated with those neighborhoods the stuff of equality is is the ability to self-determine it's the it's the it's the acquisition and the use of enough economic leverage and power of enough cultural sway of enough political importance that you can uh, you can produce for a, a community the kinds of outcomes that uh, that we want to see the the advocates that we're going to talk about in this case their their slogan was, every neighborhood should be an opportunity neighborhood and that's part of what they were getting at is that is that as as long as we accept this duality of opportunity and then other types of neighborhoods we're going to be faced with the question who lives where mm -hmm. who's who lives in each of those places and why and uh and i think we want to get away from that that's what we're trying to get away from it mm-hmm so rather than moving people to opportunity neighborhoods, what if we made every neighborhood an opportunity neighborhood and no one would have to move? Just dig in in your place uh, and, and make it work for, for yourself, for your household, for your neighbors. Great. I love that you just plugged uh, the specific case example. So let's go there. Equity in Place is the name of a local coalition of place-based housing and advocacy groups in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Give us some backstory on EIP. And then where I want to get to is these two kind of strategic reframings that they introduced into the policy space. Uh, one was the white proximity model, and the other is the notion of racially concentrated areas of affluence. So we'll talk about those two in a second. But first of all, give us some backstory on EIP. Sure. The backstory begins with the fact that the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul and the uh, surrounding suburbs, has been a metro area where this debate that you and I spoke about earlier between mobility and community development, this has been a metro area where that debate has been quite visible. There are vocal proponents on both sides of this issue. And what that has meant is that every time there are decisions to be made about allocation of government resources, of investment from philanthropic uh, organizations and the Twin Cities has a very active 
philanthropic uh, community. Whenever those decisions of where to invest are being made, there is this argument going on locally here in the Twin Cities about, well, we should we should facilitate uh, outward movement of people to opportunity neighborhoods. We should not be building more affordable housing in in disadvantaged neighborhoods because that perpetuates um, uh, segregation, et cetera. Right. So, Equity in Place is a coalition of community organizations. Some are place-based, uh, but some are, are not. Some are advocacy groups that, that work uh, uh, across the region. And they have been part of this debate. They have seen people actively denigrating their work, uh, the work of other community development organizations, um, not only alleging that they're efforts are not effective, uh, but that they're actually detrimental, that they are problematic in terms of uh, trying to achieve equity. Um, and so this has resonated very loudly uh, locally. And, you know, the Twin Cities, we have the two central city governments, we have a, a regional planning body, the Metropolitan Council, and the state legislature is in is in St. Paul. So all levels of government are here listening, engaging in this in this kind of debate. And equity in place is one of the central actors in this. I will say uh, that Cura, my center, has been part of the coalition for equity in place as well. Our role is more of a research uh, and support. Uh, whereas other groups do service provision or advocacy, um, but that we have worked with this coalition for um, for several years. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get to the white proximity model. Tell our, our audience what that's all about. Right, so the white proximity model was an idea that was developed by some members of the Equity in Place uh, Coalition. Um, and it was an attempt to lampoon the notion of what Stokely Carmichael said that I quoted earlier, right? That in order to have a good education, a good job, a good house, that you have to live near white people. So the white proximity model is this facetious kind of uh, um, graph that plots well-being on one axis and the number of white or the percentage of white people on the other axis and shows a straight line linear correlation between well-being and the percentage of white people, right? And then the graphic shows this, this white guy saying, you know, uh, are you uh, are you are you feeling down? Are you are you worried about your neighborhood, your house, schools aren't good enough? Uh, well, I've got the solution for you. Come live in a white neighborhood, right? And so the idea was just to sort of surface the assumptions behind mobility programs and to really state them in the baldest terms, because we think that that is actually a pretty accurate description, fundamentally, of the of the mobility um, and the opportunity uh, paradigm. So 
So that's what the white proximity model is. Yeah, and you know, readers can take a look at the essay, and they can they can meet Brad, uh, the, uh, the 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 person in this ad uh, inviting people of color to move to white neighborhoods. There is something facetious about it, and, and kind of going at that level, I think, uh, puts it in stark relief. There's also something um, incredibly pernicious and 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 heartbreaking about this because it's not only white people who think this way. Right. We've had centuries of an effort to put forth the ideology that white is better and black is inferior over generations. And it has been so effectively and powerfully done that uh, many of us black people believe it ourselves. And whether we believe it explicitly and um, sadly, there are times when that will get said, um, it's certainly deep within our psyche somewhere. Um conscious or, or unconscious. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're often quick to talk about implicit bias that exists among white people. Uh, but I think we also have to be honest about the implicit bias that exists among people of color. There's internalized racism is a reality. And so there may be some listening to this podcast who are saying, but, but yeah, I want to get out of a black community because this is the stuff I'm experiencing here. And you can critique it if you want, Mark and Ed, uh, but I'm headed to to this white neighborhood because I do think that's where the better schools are going to be. And so this kind of notion that in order to have a better life, you have to accept being around white people where you live, where you work, where you go to school, um, is pretty replete through our society. I mean, it's pretty accepted in some ways. So that's what I appreciate about the courage of of your work and Anthony's work and, and Rashad's work is to say, so, folks, we're just going to name this. And 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 problematize it and kind of continue to interrogate it. Why why has that become the way we think about what it takes to live a better life in America? Right. Well, look, I mean, I, I, there is some truth to it, right? White communities are the communities that get the greatest investments. White communities uh, are endowed with uh, with better uh, services, um, and 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 so that's that. There is some empirical uh, truth to this. Um, uh, what what we try to lampoon is the idea that that's that's the solution, right? That um, that that there's no way to challenge that. There's no reason to challenge that, right? And and so we try to point out the simplistic nature of it. We try to uh, I think it points out the demeaning uh, nature of it, and the and the, um, and the paternalistic, we tried to make Brad as paternalistic as 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 we could in that uh, in that graphic, and you know there are kernels of truth in it because of the way we have made decisions about public and private investment in this country, and and some of the power is in that as well. For sure, what I love about the essay is, and you just used the word empirical. You have this one part, the white proximity model, which is a little facetious, but then you turn to something rigorous to say, okay, yes, this is how we've built out society. Let's take a closer look at it. And so you come up with these notion of racially concentrated areas of affluence. We paid a lot of time looking and studying and statistics on where disadvantage is. You all flip the script and say, why don't we pay more attention to where the affluence is? So can you talk a little bit about that part of the model? Sure. So this was also an idea that came from the community activists in the equity in place coalition uh, and they were reacting to what we talked about earlier which is that this whole model 
stigmatizes their communities and it stigmatizes communities of color and low wealth uh, communities. And they were tired of the framework uh, that focused on the quote unquote deficiencies of those uh, of those neighborhoods and racially concentrated areas of poverty are actual things that the federal government requires local governments to study and to uh, and and to enumerate and um, and to address in their in their policy. Right, the federal government requires its subgrantees to uh, to study these uh, areas and. So the activists in Equity in Place said, you know, if, if segregation is a problem, segregation is a continuum. On the one end, you have segregation of people of color and poverty. And on the other end, you have segregation of white people and affluence. And frankly, white people are the most segregated racial group in the United States. And wealthy people are more segregated than our poor people. So that's the empirics of it. And this group was just saying, why are we looking at those communities, right? Our focus is so centrally on communities of color and poverty, and we give a complete blank check to white, exclusively white neighborhoods, wealthy neighborhoods, where advantage is being hoarded. Um, and and why aren't we looking at that, right? So they they, they just tried to sort of talk about uh, what what hadn't been mentioned, what had not appeared in the conversation about regional equity. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so it was a powerful idea. What we did at the Center for Urban and Regional Affairs is then tried to operationalize that from a research standpoint. And so uh, we did in, in various ways. And then we took to to studying them. Where are these places? And we found that some places have a lot of these racially concentrated areas of affluence and other, other metropolitan areas don't have so many. The Twin Cities happens to have a lot of them and they're all located in the suburbs. Uh, and all of these racially concentrated areas of poverty are located um, in central cities. But if your focus is only on racially concentrated areas of poverty, you miss the broader view of regional equity, which identifies white affluence and exclusive white affluence in large portions of uh, metropolitan areas. Great. Thanks, Ed. So, and we'll also uh, track down if there's a website for equity in place so that our, our listeners can can go directly and, and learn more about that, that coalition and their work. So I want to dig in now on what this all means for mixed income communities, which is what we talk about a lot on, on this podcast. And I think there are those, you know, whereas you're not a guy who will go around talking about mixed income communities, you'll talk about community development, you'll talk about place-based development. I also don't think you're someone who's against them necessarily, but I think you get pegged as that, like Ed gets is kind of anti-mixed income communities. I don't, I, and, and your work could be read that way, but I don't think that's the case. You do, and and quote, um, your essay calls into question, quote, the intrinsic utility of mixed income communities. And by that, I read you to say, mixed income communities just for the sake of mixing, integration just for the sake of integration, like it's just a good thing because it's a good thing. No, I don't agree with that. 
I want to know who's benefiting. I want to know whose lives are improving. I want to know who has power. I want to know who has a say. Then I can tell you if this is working. So the intrinsic utility is what you question. And clearly, you strongly critique any strategy that just has mobility at its core to move people into more affluent communities, you, you question. But on the other hand, as you just did, you question concentrated affluence and you name it as a problem. So clearly, you'd like to see that mixed up a bit. Um, and I think you you would support any community development efforts that would seek to preserve affordable housing in a community as it's revitalizing so that people can stay in place. But I don't know that you have anything against others moving in of different races, different means into that community, and therefore it becoming a mixed income community. I just hear you asking, what's happening to the residents who were there all along? Was this part of something they wanted for their neighborhood? Do they have voices? This is happening. So I want to give you a chance to kind of set the record straight. Ed Getz and mixed income communities, tell our audience where you stand on. Actually, you've left me nothing to say, Mark. You've, 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 <laughs> you've actually uh, characterized it exactly, right? I think earlier you uh, you mentioned uh, the, the distinction between integration and mobility. And, and, and I agree with that. That's, that's, that's important here, right? Because um, I'm not a critic of integration per se, right? That, and, and some people think I am, right? Uh, I've been called a neo-segregationist, actually. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, oh, I was right. What I'm against and what bothers me is uh, integration, as you say, for the sake of integration, right? The idea that integration itself is the solution rather than as a means and understanding that this means works for some families and some uh, people, but is not of interest to others. We have to be more nuanced uh, in our in our understanding of uh, of of mix. Um, and uh, and we have to understand what objectives are being served by it um, because it's those objectives that are important uh, more so than the, uh, than the mix itself. And so uh, I would agree with you. I'm not a, a, a critic of, uh, of income mixing. I am a, a critic and will continue to be a critic of, of forced income mixing, right? Of, of, of forcibly moving people out of their, communities in the name of income mixing. So to me, it makes a great deal of difference how we get to income mixing. And if that in incorporates forms of coercion or dispossession of, of people, um, that's, that is highly problematic to me. And it's not highly problematic to all, uh, to all people. So, um, so I think that, uh, you, uh, you, you know, you have, uh, accurately characterized my point and probably said it more eloquently. <laughs> well, Ed, I really appreciate that. I'm going to have one more question for you in a second, but just want to want to express my gratitude to you. Um, you know, as I've told the audience in my introduction, I've really considered you a role model and a mentor uh, and someone I've, I've kept my eye on as I've come up through my career uh, for the combination of, of, you know, always having that kind of rigor and intellectual clarity and, and kind of setting a, a high bar for the critical thinking, but marrying it with the courage to be able to name when you see something not working, not clear, not feeling the need to kind of go along with the crowd. And we do tend to have some crowds uh, in this work and in this field. And you've just been one of those folks who um, I think we can always count on 
um, to say, hold on a second, let's question that a little bit. Let's ask that that um, deeper probing of this particular, you know, accepted uh, framing or narrative. And I've just always appreciated that. So here's my last question for you. As you know, we've called the podcast Bending the Arc because this reflects the work we think we all have to do. The arc is not going to bend itself. And uh, as we've talked about today, uh, there are folks who may be kind of bending it in the wrong direction. So we got to work to bend the arc toward uh, justice, the arc of the moral universe toward justice. So here's the question. Action steps. What could we be doing? What could you be doing? What could we be doing to bend that arc? And so I'd love you to talk for a moment just about uh, one action step uh, that you would say for yourself at this juncture uh, of your illustrious career. Uh, at this juncture, what's the action step? What's the next step you might pledge to? And then what's an action step you might ask our audience members to commit to? Uh, great. I'm I'm deeply disturbed by this question. Um, uh, but I'll try to answer it uh, anyway. I can assume that your uh, listeners are intensely interested in social justice. They wouldn't have suffered through uh, an hour of my uh, uh, talk to um, uh, in, in any other uh, circumstance. Um, and so, you know, I don't know that next steps uh, have to be about telling uh, your listeners sort of how to go about uh, achieving that in, in various different ways. My current and most recent focus has been specifically not just social justice but racial justice um, in my teaching and my uh, and my writing and and research. And so my answer is going to be about and and there's such a racial element to all of the things that that we've talked about, uh, even though mixed income doesn't necessarily um, uh, engage with the uh, with the issue of of race, but uh, of course we know in in practice that it does. Um, and so uh, my answer is going to be about what to do about furthering racial justice. And the answer for me is the same as the answer for others. And I guess uh, uh, actually not all others, but but mostly to white listeners. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an enormous sort of staggering asymmetry of understanding about race in the United States and about whiteness. Um, white people, including me, we're on the wrong end of that symmetry, right? Because we've been white, we, we are white people and we've been white our entire lives, we have benefited from the advantages and but more than that, we've never had to question why the system works the way it does. Um, and we've never had to question or really surface our whiteness in analyzing why things happen to us, right? This is not a privilege that people of color have in the United States, right? Um, what was it? James Baldwin said, you know, I've spent most of my time watching and studying white people so that I can survive. Right. Uh, the philosopher Charles Mills talked about most people of color are lay anthropologists hmm. in understanding white people and what drives them and 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 how to survive in this system. Right. That's something that 
you know, when I teach about this and I teach white students and I teach uh, students of color, um, becomes so obvious uh, to me. Um, so I guess my answer is that um, we've got a lot of work to do in in how we frame problems, how we understand problems. And fundamental in this area of racial justice is for white people to start thinking about whiteness as a force, as uh, uh, and, and its role in, um, uh, in these outcomes that we see. That's what racially concentrated areas of affluence are about. It's about seeing white affluence and questioning it. Um, it's what the uh, it's what the white proximity model is about, right? It's surfacing the issue of whiteness and interrogating it. You know, the way that you define a problem mm. establishes the solution set, mm. right? Mm. And so, if we if we continue to insist upon thinking about the racial problem as the problem of communities of color and people of color and not about whiteness, um, then we're pursuing a whole set of solutions that ignore, uh, it, it's, to me, it's, it's not just an inadequate understanding of racial uh, inequities, um, uh, but it's, it's incorrect. It's just an incorrect understanding of how we got to where we are and where we should be going. Mm powerfully stated. Ed Getz, my friend, thank you for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Many thanks to Dr. Ed Getz for joining me for this episode of Bending the Arc. His essay, co-authored with Anthony Damiano and Rashad Williams, is just one of almost 40 essays in our volume on mixed income communities, available to be downloaded online. You can find them at our website at nimc.case.edu. Our podcast is produced and edited by Davey Barris from Case Western Reserve University's Media Vision. Funding for this podcast series was provided by the Ford Foundation and the Kresge Foundation, and funding for the What Works volume was provided by the Kresge Foundation. Thanks for listening, and we'd appreciate you sharing this podcast with anyone you think would enjoy it. And we hope you'll join us for future podcast episodes. Until then, keep doing your part to bend the arc.